I've been preaching the gospel now for right at 16 years. And in that 16 years of preaching the Bible, I've experienced different types of responses. I've seen some positive things happen, some encouraging things said to me about how God had used His Word in someone's life. I've had people get angry and and actually walk out of a sermon because of something that I said. I've even had people sleep during my sermons. Not here, not this church, but I mean other churches. I've had people actually sleep during my sermon. All different types of responses. Well, I find it interesting to look at a sermon that the Apostle Paul preached and see what he says, and then look at how people responded to his sermon. Because the sermon we're going to look at in Acts chapter 17 is an Easter sermon. Now, there's no indication that Paul preached this on Easter Sunday, but the, the message finds its crescendo in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He, he focuses in on the resurrection. So it's an Easter sermon in that sense. And it's interesting to see how people responded to Paul's Easter message. Now, I want to look at those responses and, and apply it to us in this room this morning. So turn with me to Acts chapter 17. We'll begin reading in verse 22. Acts chapter 17, verse 22. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. The Bible says, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because... He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men, watch this, by raising him from the dead. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. We're so grateful for this opportunity to gather together on Easter Sunday and to celebrate Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would just draw near to us by your Spirit, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, help us to see the truths of Scripture, help us to respond to the truths of Scripture, apply the truths of Scripture to our lives so that we might be changed 
and you might be honored and glorified. Father, I ask that you would establish my steps today in your word. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. In this passage, we see Paul in the midst of his second missionary journey. He had traveled from Antioch through Asia into Macedonia. After traveling through the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, Paul left his companions he was traveling with because he was in danger from the Thessalonian Jews that wanted to silence his preaching. So Paul was escorted to the the great city of Athens uh, to safety where he planned to wait for Silas and Timothy to rejoin him. Now, Athens was an interesting city in the first century. It was a cultural, intellectual center for the Greeks and really for the Roman Empire. Athens boasted of the Parthenon, numerous temples, and other great buildings. Through the years, intellectual luminaries like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus had lived there in Athens. The, the buildings, the works of art, the intellectual climate represented the highest level of culture in the eyes of Greek uh, citizens. And so we see Paul enter this city in verse 16. And the Bible says as he looked around, and so all of the idol worship, his spirit was provoked. He saw a lot of religion. He even tells them at the beginning of his sermon, you're a religious people. But he knew they were missing the one true God. Which, by the way, did you know you can be very religious and miss God? They're very religious. But they were missing the one true God. They were worshiping false gods. They were worshiping idols. And so Paul's spirit is provoked within him. And he wants to address him with truth. So he goes to the synagogue. And he begins to share with the Jews the message of Jesus. And he goes to the marketplace and shares with the Gentiles the message of Jesus. And eventually, there are some folks who are philosophers uh, that hear of this message. And so they say, well, we've got our philosophy and, and others have their philosophy and this is a new philosophy we've never heard. So let's take him to the Areopagus. Now the Areopagus was a hill, the hill of Ares, who was the Greek god of war, what it was named after. And on this hill, there was a, a court that convened to exercise jurisdiction in religious and moral matters. They want to bring uh, Paul to the top of this hill so that this, this court can hear him out. And it's interesting to note that the ones who bring him are the Epicureans and the Stoics. So wait, who are the Epicureans and the Stoics? Well, the Epicureans represented one a branch of philosophy that basically said this about life. Life is short, so live it up. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. I mean, life is just very, very uh, transient, and so you need to pursue pleasure with all of your might. You need to make sure you find as much pleasure as you can in this life. That was the Epicurean philosophy of life. Now, the Stoics were different. The Stoics said, well, you know what? Life is really, really hard, really difficult, so just endure it. Be tough, gut it out, pick yourselves up by the bootstraps, and just kind of make it through life, but it's going to be awful. That's basically the Stoic view of life. Now, I like what Warren Wearsby writes about this, this setting. He writes, the Epicureans said, enjoy life. The Stoics said, endure life. But it remained for Paul to explain how they could enter into life through faith in God's risen Son. So these different schools of philosophy bring Paul to the top of the Areopagus and say, okay, tell us your philosophy. 
And that's when Paul preaches the sermon that we just read. Now what I want to do is I want to look at this passage in two, under two different headings. First of all, I want us to see the appeal that Paul makes. The appeal that Paul makes. And I want to talk about the response to his sermon. First of all, let's talk about the appeal. This sermon has three basic parts to it. I just want to kind of walk you through these three parts so we understand what Paul is preaching. The first part of the sermon says this. There's one God that made everything and everyone, and He is knowable. There's one God who made everything and who made everyone, and this one God is knowable. Look what Paul says in verse 22. Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now here's what the Athenians were doing. They had all these different altars and temples where they worshipped all these pagan gods, these false gods. But just to cover all the bases, to make sure they had it all covered, they made an altar to an unknown God. So just in case we missed one, this is the altar to that God that we may have missed. They were covering all their bases. Uh, Years ago I read a a biography about Willie Mays. And great baseball player. I, just, I, I, I love how, how skilled he was at baseball and gifted he was at baseball. And he, it is a fascinating story. But at one part of this book, uh, the author made this comment that in Willie May's home, he had different representations from different world religions to, use a baseball term, cover all the bases. He wanted to make sure he had all the bases covered. And, and that's what the Athenians are doing here. They're covering all the bases. This unknown God. So look what Paul says. He says there, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He said, there is a God that you do not know. There is a God that you're missing, and I can proclaim him to you. I can tell you about this God, the true God. Now, the word unknown, where he says this altar to an unknown God, is the word agnosto in the Greek language. It's where we get the word agnostic from. An agnostic is someone that says you can't know something with certainty. An agnostic in relationship to God says you can't know if there's a God or what that God is like with any kind of certainty. But notice here, Paul is not agnostic. He's saying, you call this God unknown, you've missed him, I'm going to tell you about this God because he is knowable. I know him, I'm going to present him, share him with you. And so God wants them to know that the one true God, the God that they had been missing, was a God who was knowable. As I was studying this passage, I was reminded of a story uh, from Norman Geisler. Norman Geisler was uh, with his church, walking down a street one day, knocking on doors and sharing Christ with people that came to their door. And uh, at one of these homes, they knocked on the door, and a gentleman by the name of Don came to the door. So they began to ask him some questions to see where he was spiritually. And, and Geisler asked Don this question. He said, if you were standing before God today, and he asked you why he should let you into heaven, what would you say? And Don said, I would say to him, why shouldn't you let me into heaven? And Geisler said, "Uh uh-oh. He prayed a quick prayer. And he said, well, let me ask you this, Don. He said, what if we came up to your front porch, like we are now, came to your front door, and you said to us, why should I let you into my house? And we said, why shouldn't you let us into your house? What would you say? And Don said, I tell you guys where to go. And Geisler said, so will God. 
And then Don said, well, I'm not even a believer in God. I'm an atheist. I don't believe there is a God. And Geister said, oh, so, so you're an atheist. I, I didn't know that. And he said, well, let me ask you a question. He said, Don, can you be absolutely sure that there is no God? And Don said, well, I don't guess I can be absolutely sure there is no God. And so Geister said, well, you're really not an atheist, then you're an agnostic. And the guy agreed, so okay, I guess I'm an agnostic. And then Geisler said, well, well, Don, are you an ordinary agnostic or are you an ornery agnostic? And Don said, what's the difference? And Norman Geisler said, well, an ordinary agnostic says he doesn't know anything for sure. An ornery agnostic says he can't know anything for sure. You can't have certainty with anything. And Don said very confidently, I'm an ornery agnostic. You can't know anything for sure. To which Geisler, who'd been trained in these sorts of conversations, says this. Uh, you say you can't know anything for sure. How do you know that for sure? And then he asked him this question. How do you know for sure that you can't know anything for sure? It was a, his, his Don's statement was a self-refuting statement. And so Don agreed and said, okay, I guess I'm an ordinary agnostic. I don't know anything for sure. They continued to discuss and... Here's what Norman Geisler asked Don at his front door. He said, since you admit you can know something, why don't you know that God exists? You say that there may be some knowledge out there that, that is knowable. Why don't you know if God exists? And Don said, it's because no one's ever shown me any evidence. And so Geisler said, well, listen, can I share some things with you? And Don said, yes, you can. And so they left a book with him about the historicity of the resurrection. The truthfulness that Jesus Christ really did rise from the grave. And they checked on him a few days later. And he said, I tell you, this is some pretty compelling stuff. And so they got Don in a Bible study on the Gospel of John. And a few weeks later, Don gave his life to Jesus Christ. Now, now look, at this, look at this journey Don uh, was on. He went from being an atheist to an agnostic to the point where he knew God. And that's what Paul's saying here. You call God an unknown God, you're missing the true God, but I want you to know the one true God is knowable. I'm proclaiming Him to you. I'm, I'm telling you about Him. That's the first part of his sermon. The second part of Paul's sermon says this. This God who's knowable, this God desires that all people seek and find Him. Look what Paul says in verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Now look in verse 26. He made from one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Here's what Paul's saying. God made everyone. And God ordained when they would be born, where they would be born, and how long they would live. God set all that up. God put the boundaries around our lives. God chose that you would be born where you were born. God chose that I would be born in Tallahassee, Florida. So I could be close to Florida State University. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But he chose where I was born, and he, he chose where you were born. Why did he do that? Well, look what he says in the next verse. So that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and 
find him. So Paul's saying the reason God put people where they were, the reason God gave people life, is so that they would grope after, seek after God, and find him. And look what he says in the next phrase. Though he is not far from each one of us. I don't know where everyone in this room is, spiritually speaking. I don't know where you are with God. But I can tell you this. Because of the cross and the empty tomb, God is not far from each one of us. He wants you to seek after him. Listen, because he wants you to find him. One of the first games we learned to play growing up is the game hide and seek. You know, someone's it, they count to 10 or 20, and while they're counting, everyone else runs and finds a great hiding place, and the goal of the game is not to be found. That's the goal of the game. Well, listen to me. God is not playing hide and seek with you. He wants to be found. He wants you to know him in a personal way. He wants you to seek after him grope after Him so that you can find Him and know Him and experience Him and encounter Him in your life. God wants to be found. That's the the point Paul's making. To you, men of Athens, He's unknown, but He's knowable, and He wants you to seek Him and find Him, which leads to the third part of the sermon. The third part of the sermon is this. We need to repent and seek Him. Because there's a day of judgment coming. There's a God who's real, who's knowable. He wants you to seek Him and find Him. And you need to go ahead and repent because there is a day of judgment coming. Look what Paul says in verse 29. Being then the children of God, by children of God there, he doesn't mean a relationship with God. He's using that term in, in, in terms of, uh, he's using that phrase in terms of uh, uh, being created by God. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. He says, you think you can get to God by creating idols. He says, you're missing it. That's not who God is. And he goes on to say, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Now, in this part of the sermon, Paul makes three very poignant statements three poignant points first of all there's a command verse 29 sorry verse 30 says he's now declaring to men uh, that all people everywhere should repent here's what repentance is repentance is when you're going one direction and it's the wrong direction so you stop going that direction and you turn and go the right direction that's what repentance is and when he says that everyone everywhere needs to repent implied in this command to repent is that we all are going the wrong direction If we were going the right direction, we wouldn't be called to repent, right? So when he tells everyone everywhere to repent, he's saying to everyone everywhere, you're going the wrong direction. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all turned our back to God. We've all gone our own way and done our own thing. And in, in, in all of our lives, we need to come to a place where we repent, where we stop going the wrong direction and turn and run to the one true God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So there's a command. Repent. Stop. You're going the wrong direction. You're heading down a pathway that will end in destruction. Repent. Stop. Turn. There's a command. I like what James Montgomery Boyce writes. We need the message of repentance for our generation too. Christianity does not begin by saying, you're a very good fellow and everything is going to be nice for you if you will just get in touch with God. Christianity says you have failed to seek after God. 
You have gone your own way. You are willfully ignorant. Therefore, God commands that you repent of that ignorance. And as we repent, God holds out the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so Paul's saying here, you're going the wrong direction. Repent and turn to the true God. But there's a second part of this, this part of the sermon. There's a deadline. Look what Paul says in verse 30. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. The Bible tells us, Paul tells us here, that there is a day that has been fixed by God where He will judge all of humanity. Now, I don't know when that day is. You don't know when that day is, but we know something for certain. We're one day closer today than we were yesterday. And, and we're about 45 minutes closer than we were at the beginning of this service. God has fixed a day. And we need to be ready for that day. And if you have not had your sins washed away by the blood of Christ, you are not ready to stand before God. You are separated from Him. You're not ready for that day. And Paul says everyone everywhere needs to repent. Stop the wrong direction. Go the right direction because God has fixed a day of judgment. That day is coming. You need to be ready. There's a deadline. A deadline. Third, there's a judge. There's a command, there's a deadline, and there's a judge. Look what Paul says. He says, He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul tells us here that God the Father has put all matters of judgment into the hands of God the Son. Jesus Christ will stand as judge over all of humanity on that day. He's the judge. And one day we'll stand before him. And we need to be ready. But let me tell you something about this judge. This judge is different than our concept of a judge. We think of a judge, we think of a, you know, a man or a woman in black robes in a courtroom type setting. Passing judgment on a situation, on an issue. But this judge, Jesus, this judge has done, done something before Judgment Day to prepare you for Judgment Day. To illustrate this, let me share with you a story that Billy Graham tells. One day Billy Graham was driving through a small town and he got caught in a speed trap. Anyone ever been caught in a speed trap before? Caught in a speed trap and the officer came and told him how fast he was going over the speed limit and said, you have to appear before the judge today. You have to pay today. And so the officer took Billy Graham in to appear before the judge, and the judge looked at all the information and how fast he was going and how much it would cost Billy Graham, so he wrote down the fine for the speeding, and he was filling out the final information. As he signed his name, he looked up, and he noticed who was sitting there with him. Billy Graham was well-known at this time. He noticed that this is the famous evangelist sitting in his office. So you know what the judge did? The judge took out his wallet, took out the money for the fine, and paid it himself. And when he did that, Billy Graham got up to, to leave the, the judge's chambers, and then when he was leaving, he thought, what an illustration of the gospel. That the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, did something for me before Judgment Day so that I could be ready for Judgment Day. The judge came to this earth, lived a perfect life, 
died on the cross for my sins, took my punishment, he paid it all so that I could be saved and ready to stand before God. That's your judge. So you can experience Jesus today in this life as Savior and Lord and forgiver who died for your sins because he loves you or you can stand before him one day as the judge of your life. And if you stand before him as judge and you're not ready, your sins have not been forgiven, the Bible says that he will cast you into the lake of fire where you will spend eternity separated from God. But you need not go to hell because Jesus has paid it all. He's done what's necessary to prepare you for that day. So here's Paul's point. There is a real God, the one true God, and He is knowable. This God desires that all people seek Him and find Him, and we need to repent and seek Him because there's a day of judgment coming. That's His sermon. Now it's interesting to note how people respond to Paul's sermon. Because notice how he closes the sermon. This man that God has given matters of judgment to has been appointed and God has proven that he is the appointed judge by raising him from the dead. He's shown us there's something significant about this man by, by causing him to walk out of his tomb. He raised him from the dead. How do people respond to Paul's sermon? Well, if you look, there are three responses that probably are responses that will be mirrored in this room today. The first response is this. Some people mocked. Look what it says in verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. They thought that this message of a resurrected uh, Savior who would stand as judge over all of humanity was foolishness. And they heard the resurrection, they heard that doctrine, and they sneered, they, they mocked Paul's message. And whenever the gospel goes forth, whenever the message of Christ goes forth, there will be people that mock and sneer and malign. Even in our culture today. Did you read the story this uh, past uh, week about a professor at Florida Atlantic University that for an assignment had all the students get out a piece of paper. He said, I want you to write the name of Jesus on that piece of paper and I want you to put it on the floor and stomp on it. And one student said, well, I'm not going to do that. And so the professor suspended him from the class. Now, there's a big controversy going on about this right now. The, the university's put that professor on academic uh, leave, and here's the reason. They didn't, not because he did anything wrong. They said, we just want to protect him right now. He's not safe. And so we're putting him on leave so that he is safe. No recognition that it was wrong. It was a violation of conscience and freedom of religion to make people stomp on a piece of paper that said Jesus. What's happening there in higher education? It, it's a, a mocking, a sneering at Jesus. It, it's very real in our culture, and it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. So we ought not be surprised when people sneer at Jesus. They've been sneering since the first century. Some people mocked. Secondly, this is fascinating, some people waited. Some people waited. Look what the Bible says in verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. This is interesting. I hear what you're saying. 
we want to hear you again. So Paul went out of their midst. Now, there's no indication that they ever heard Paul preach this again. But in that moment, they said, we want to hear you again. We're, we're going to wait. We want to ponder this message. And just like in the first century, some people put off following Christ and they waited, there are many who, when they hear the message of the gospel, say, I'll get to that later. Maybe even some in this room that say, I'll get to that later. Wait, I hear you. I hear about all the Jesus stuff. I'll get to Jesus later. I'll, I'll deal with that later. I, I've got life to live right now. I've got some things I'm trying to get in order in my life. And, and once I get my life ordered like I want it, then I'll get serious about all the Jesus stuff. And you just put off following Christ. And Jesus shares an illustration, a parable, to demonstrate the danger in waiting. Uh, look with me in Luke chapter 12. Just two books before the book of Acts. Written by the same author, Dr. Luke. Look in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Then he, Jesus, said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Paul, Jesus is saying here, there's so much more to life than stuff. But, but so many people get consumed with stuff, with material possessions, with acquiring, with security and comfort, and they just get consumed with that. Look what Jesus says. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do? He says, I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Sounds like an Epicurean, doesn't he? I've got all the material things I need. Eat, drink, be merry. Live it up. But God said to him, verse 20, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? Jesus is saying this, this man was dealing with material things and, and, and dealing with life and was putting off matters of the soul. And Jesus says, That's foolish. Because his soul was required of him that very night. And his possessions could not save him. Can I just tell you this? It is foolish to wait. We're not guaranteed another blink of our eye. We're not guaranteed another beat of our heart. We're not guaranteed that we will ever draw another breath. When we hear the gospel, we sense the Spirit of God gripping our hearts, showing us our need for a Savior. We need to respond. Not wait, not put it off. Because life is so short and life is so uncertain. And if you're waiting this morning, can I ask you this question very gently with all the love I can muster? Let me ask you this question. What are you waiting for? We're talking about forgiveness of all your sins. Eternal life in heaven. A personal relationship with God. A transformed nature. Hope. Peace. Joy. Fulfillment. Meaning. Purpose. All of that is offered to you as a free gift of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. What are you waiting for? 
Do you not want to be set free from your sins? Do you not want to know that you don't have to fear death? Do you not want to have your eternity nailed down? Do you not want to be ready to stand before God one day? What are you waiting for? You are loved. The cross declares over your life that God loves you because He sent His Son to die for you. And Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive today. And today, He is mighty to save. So can I just encourage you with this? If you've been waiting and putting off a decision to follow Christ, let today be your day of salvation. Easter Sunday... 2013, make that the day that you chose to embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior and receive the free gift of God. Some people waited. But third, some mocked, some waited, but third, some people believed. Look what the Bible says back in Acts. Chapter 17, verse 34. It says, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite. He was on the Areopagus, a philosopher, no doubt. And a woman named Damaris and others with him. So we don't see a large number, number of people responding in Athens, but some people do believe. Embrace Paul's message. Embrace Jesus as Savior. Believe in Jesus, and they are saved. Some people believe. And when the gospel goes out... When the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ are proclaimed, there will be some who believe. And that's good news. At a previous church, when I just started pastoring, I was preaching to my congregation, John chapter 3, and I remember it crystal clear. It was on the passage where Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And I was just, I was hammering it home. I was saying something like this. Church membership will not save you. You must be born again. Baptism will not save you. You must be born again. Denominational affiliation will not save you. You must be born again. I was driving home the point that religion will not save you. You have to be transformed. You have to be made a new person by Christ as you accept Him as Lord and Savior. So I was hammering home. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. I closed down the sermon, and we went into the invitation time, and I walked to the front, and I thought this, surely someone's going to be saved today. I preached the gospel as clearly as I knew how. I preached with all my heart and soul, someone's going to be saved today. I just know it. And I came to the front, and we were singing a song, and no one came down the aisle. We sang another verse, no one came down the aisle. And the service closed. And be real honest with you, as a young preacher, I was discouraged. I thought, surely we had lost people in our midst that day. And, and, I, and I just laid out the gospel and no one got saved. And I was, it was kind of a head-scratcher moment for me. And then that night, my church had a uh, fellowship time. And I stand there talking to some folks. And a gentleman walked up to me that had been visiting our church. And he said, uh, Pastor, I need to talk to you for a moment. I said, well, sure. So we went into my study, and we sat down there. And I said, what can I do for you? Here, here were his words. He said, I need to be born again. And I had the privilege in my study of leading him to faith in Christ. And he was saved there on that night. And it was as if God was saying to this young preacher, 
If you'll just be faithful to declare the good news, if you'll be faithful to preach the gospel, some will believe. You leave that up to me. You preach and you leave the rest up to me, but some will believe. And maybe there are some here today. You've heard the gospel message. You know that you're not right with God. You know that you need to be saved. And today is the day when you will believe. Perhaps. In a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to the glorious good news that Jesus saves sinners. So we see Paul's appeal and we see the people's response. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose from the grave. What's your response?